Welcome to Murder Minute. Today you'll hear the story of the murder of eight nurses in Chicago. But first, your true crime headlines. A 19-year-old San Antonio man was arrested after beating his girlfriend and carving his name into her forehead with a knife. Jacob Jackson Hildreth was charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon after the incident, which occurred when an argument between the couple turned violent. Over the course of several hours, Hildreth punched the 22-year-old victim as many as 10 times, breaking her jaw in three places. He then used a knife to carve his name into the woman's forehead. He fled the scene before police arrived, but was apprehended and arrested the next day. Hildreth and the victim met on Facebook and had been dating for just three weeks at the time of the assault. At the time of his arrest, Hildreth had two outstanding warrants, including one for assaulting a family member. He is being held on $75,000 bond and is scheduled to appear in court next month. In Boston, a man was removed from his own murder trial after an outburst in court, during which he threatened to sexually assault the prosecutor's wife. Bampumim Texiera was seated at the defense table, waiting for jurors to be brought into the courtroom for day two of deliberations when he made threats to prosecutor John Pappas. Court officers quickly removed Texiera, who could face additional charges for the outburst. Jurors were not in the courtroom at the time of the incident. When they were brought in, the judge told jurors that Texiera had forfeited his right to be present in the courtroom and ordered them to continue deliberations. Texiera is facing seven charges, including first-degree murder, for the 2017 killings of Dr. Richard Field and his fiancée, Dr. Lena Bolanos, in their apartment. Both were well-respected anesthesiologists. Texiera, who had been employed as a concierge at the building where the doctors lived, is accused of forcing his way into the apartment where he tied up both victims and robbed them before stabbing them both to death. In an interview with police the day after the murders, Texiera told police that he was having an affair with Bolanos and that he killed Field in self-defense. A recording of the interview was played in court and relatives and family members of the victims appeared visibly upset as they listened. Texiera's attorneys presented no evidence to substantiate his claims, and evidence presented by prosecutors contradicts his story. In the days leading up to her death, a pregnant Missouri woman made searches on her phone for what to do if your husband is upset you are pregnant, according to search warrants recently filed by police. 28-year-old Jennifer Rothwell was six weeks pregnant at the time of her murder, for which her husband of four years has been charged. 28-year-old Beau Rothwell called 911 to report his wife missing on November 12th around 9.45 p.m. He told dispatchers that he had last seen his wife at 6.20 that morning when she left for work, and that he had been contacted by her concerned co-workers after she failed to show up for work that day police found Jennifer's car along the side of the road about a mile from the couple's home, with her cell phone inside, but no sign of Jennifer. At the couple's home, police described an overwhelming smell of bleach, opened windows despite freezing temperatures inside, and red spots that appeared to be bloodstains. Friends had said, 
that there did not appear to be any sign of trouble between the couple, though it has been reported that Beau Rothwell was having an affair at the time of his wife's killing. He has been charged with second-degree murder and tampering with physical evidence. He is being held without bond and is scheduled to make his next court appearance in late January. Those were your true crime headlines. Next, one of Chicago's most shocking murder cases. But first, a quick break. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? It's time to get better help. BetterHelp offers online counseling with licensed professionals who specialize in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Get better help at your own time and your own pace. Connect with your counselor in a safe, private online environment. Anything you say is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor, Request a new one at any time, at no additional charge. This is truly an affordable option. And now, BetterHelp is offering our listeners 10% off their first month with the code MURDERMINUTE. Get BetterHelp today and start communicating in under 24 hours. Go to BetterHelp.com slash MURDERMINUTE. Fill out their simple questionnaire and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash murder minute. True crime is my passion, but even I need the occasional break. So when I feel like I need a break from all the court transcripts and autopsy reports, I play Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a addictive, visually stunning puzzler app that takes the mobile game experience to the next level. The little creatures of Minutia lived in peace and harmony until the meteor smashed into Mount Boom, bringing with it a strange force that transformed the slugs who lived there into an army of greedy, greenery-gobbling pests. Now, the slugs are taking over the world, munching a path through Minutia and sliming up everything they touch. But a brave band of heroes is fighting back, and they need your help. Left alone when the slugs conquered most of Minutia, these unlucky bug champions are on an epic quest to solve the mystery of Mount Boom and beat back the slug advance. Download the app free now. Build your team of cute characters, level them up, discover their special powers, and defeat the slugs. Join me and over 100 million people who have already downloaded this top-rated puzzle adventure. With more than 3,000 levels, you'll never run out of fiendish fun. And Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events so it never gets old. Whether I'm in the car, on the plane, procrastinating, or trying to shake off a bad day, Best Fiends is my must-play. Download the game and join the adventure today. Get Best Fiends now. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Welcome back to Murder Minute. 
Today you'll hear the story of the murder of eight nurses in Chicago. In 1966, many of the nursing students at South Chicago Community Hospital considered one another family. After a horrific night, eight of the student nurses would be bound together forever, not only as friends, but as victims in what would be considered Chicago's worst crime of the century. Merlita Gargulo grew up in the Philippines as the oldest of nine kids. That may be one reason caring for others as a nurse came so naturally to her. She was excited to be accepted as an exchange-registered nurse at the community hospital in Chicago's South Side. On the plane ride there, she met a fellow nurse, Valentina Passione, who she would be working with. It seemed meant to be. The two young women became fast friends and lived along with other nurses they grew close to in a two-story townhouse in walking distance of the hospital. It was sort of like a dormitory. There, they met another Filipina nurse, Corazon Amaro, who went by the name Cora, and other nurses from the U.S., including Nina Jo Schmale, Marianne Jordan, Pamela Wilkening, Gloria Jean Davy, and Patricia Matusik, also known as Pat. A photo published in the Chicago Tribune in 2016 show the women huddled together, laughing, as though at an inside joke as they pose with a school of nursing flag. They all have short, dark, well-coiffed hair, skirts or dresses that stopped just above their knees and bright smiles. The caption beneath the photo reads, Joy for Life. Another image above the words, All Dressed Up, shows the nurses out of uniform, ready for a night on the town. They look stylish in that 1960s way with their lips topped with shades of red lipstick. It's difficult to fathom that all but one of these women, who loved each other and caring for their patients, would survive beyond their mid-20s. On July 13, 1996, Chicago was already making national headlines because of the so-called West Side Riots, which broke out after police arrested a black man named William Young for armed robbery. Young first tried to evade arrest, running through the streets yelling that police were trying to kill him. Around 200 people gathered and started demanding his release. The public outrage started on July 12th, becoming violent and would last for several days before armed guards calmed things down. One day into the riots, at South Chicago Community Hospital, violence of another kind erupted. But this time, there were no protesters or authorities nearby to help. Early the next morning, a shrill plea sounded from a window of the townhouse where the young nurses lived. It was the voice of Cora, one of the three nurses from the Philippines. They are all dead. They are all dead. I am the only one alive. She called out for a good 20 minutes before a man walking his dog took notice and contacted the police. Chicago officers rushed to the scene to find the lifeless bodies of eight young women, all ages 20 to 24, in the home. Based on statements from Cora, who had survived by hiding under a bed, and evidence at the scene, here's what happened. 
A man in his early to mid-twenties broke into the townhouse around 11 the previous night, confronting six women who lived there. Using torn-up sheets from the beds, he tied them up, promising he would only rob them. While this was happening, another nurse returned home. He tied her up too, and very quickly, he broke his vow to stop at looting the place. The man assaulted and killed three of the women, raping at least one of them. Then he moved the remaining hostages to other rooms, killing each of them in a different part of the home. The killer had bound Cora too, but as he was moving around the house, attacking her housemates, she was able to roll herself under a bed. She stayed there, trembling and trying to stay silent, until shortly before dawn, when she was sure no signs of the man lingered. Then she moved out from under the bed and broke herself free. At that point, she must have held out hope that at least some of her housemates were still alive. But walking from room to room, the horror, shock, and devastation deepened as she found all eight of her friends' bodies. It seemed they, like one woman she had witnessed, had died nearly instantly. Soon after, the Cook County Coroner's report stated that each young woman had been either stabbed to death, strangled to death, or both. In that report, the coroner called the ordeal, quote, the crime of the century. For the next three days, the killer was on the loose. No one knew his name or exactly who they were searching for. Thanks to the witness account from Cora, however, they did have something powerful. A detailed physical description of the man, including distinct characteristics. She said he was a tall, white male with pocked skin and a tattoo that read, Born to Raise Hell. The killer must have known he would be caught soon, because several days after the massacre, he slit his wrists in a 90-cent-per-night hotel, according to an NBC Chicago report. Rather than bleed out to his death, he sought emergency medical care at Cook County Hospital near midnight on July 17th. Dr. Leroy Smith, a 25-year-old surgical resident, had just read the description of the case's prime suspect in the newspaper when he arrived to treat him. As Dr. Smith washed away blood from the man's arm, he spotted the tattooed words on his skin, born to raise hell. He quickly let fellow staff know that the patient could well be a mass murderer. Once alerted, authorities rushed to the hospital and arrested the suspect, a 24-year-old drifter named Richard Speck. Aspects of the trial would turn out to be nearly as complex as the murders were heinous. William J. Martin, a 28-year-old Loyola Law School graduate, was given the task of prosecuting Speck. One of Chicago's most experienced public defenders, 53-year-old Gerald F. Getty, would defend him. Both sides were concerned about press coverage potentially tainting matters. National papers had sensationalized this story before Speck was even arrested, with headlines like, Slaying Suspect Man on the Run, featuring his likeness. The prosecutor feared that a major magazine would persuade the surviving witness Cora to share her story for a fee, money that could be life-changing for her modest-income family in the Philippines. If her story came out before the trial start, how would they find impartial jurors? 
Worst case, if they couldn't find any, it could be argued that a fair trial was impossible and Speck could be let go. So prosecutors hid Cora in Chicago hotels and then an apartment, keeping her and her kin under round-the-clock protection and giving them assumed names until the trial. Getty, the defending attorney, worried that publicity would make holding the trial locally in Cook County work against his client. The case was the talk of the town, and everyone seemed to want someone to be held accountable stat. So even though no criminal trial had ever moved because of a media frenzy before, he filed a motion to do just that. Everyone was surprised, according to the Illinois Bar Journal, when the prosecution didn't object to a move. And the trial was relocated, 150 miles southwest to Peoria, with a trial date set for February of the following year. Another interesting challenge involved the newly instilled Miranda warning, which you might know as Miranda rights. Barely a month before the murder of the nurses, the Supreme Court overturned the conviction of Ernesto Miranda for the rape of a teenage girl because it was largely based on Miranda's confession in jail just after his arrest. The court ruled that a suspect has to be advised of their right to remain silent and to an attorney or it would violate their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. That's why, to this day, suspects have to be Mirandized. Since it was a brand new requirement then, police officers and attorneys across the U.S. were adapting to its practice. To protect their case against Speck that summer, prosecutors didn't question him for three full weeks after his arrest. When they did speak with a suspect, he didn't confess, but he didn't share an alibi either. He just said he'd had too much to drink and injected himself with drugs, so he couldn't recall the events of that night at the townhouse. In fact, he said he knew nothing of the murders or the nurses. Plenty of evidence pointed to him, though, particularly Cora's sharp eyewitness account. On top of that, his fingerprints were found in the townhouse. Leading up to the court dates, psychiatrists for the defense and the prosecution examined Speck and determined that he was mentally competent to stand trial. On April 3, 1967, people filled the Peoria courtroom for the start of the trial. Over the first eight days, the prosecution called 41 witnesses to the stand, including people who could place Speck in the Southside Chicago neighborhood around the time of the murders. Family members spoke on behalf of their lost loved ones. Then Martin called Cora to the stand, the star witness they had been hiding and protecting. As she slipped in through a back door, a hired lookalike functioned as a decoy for the media near the front entrance. Cora gave a dramatic testimony, detailing the violence at the townhouse. Four knocks on her bedroom door woke her, she recalled, according to court records. She went to the door, unlocked it, then, quote, saw a man with a gun in his right hand pointed towards me, and I noticed that he had marks on his face, and his hair was blonde. She explained that the man herded six women in the home into the bedroom, tore strips from a sheet, and bound them, and that when additional housemates returned home, they too were held captive. She said the killer seemed sort of nonchalant, smiling quite a bit, and at times seeming almost friendly. Don't be afraid, she remembered him saying as he tied one of her friends up. 
I'm not going to kill you. Only, of course, he did. Guiding with a model of the townhouse and using wooden blocks to represent each victim, Cora retraced the atrocities, shifting the blocks to show where the women were moved, bound, and murdered. She recalled being paralyzed in fear as she hid under the bed when the killer came for his last victim, Gloria Davy. He raped the young woman steps away from Cora. She kept her head down, but she heard everything. Then, finally, silence. At one point, the prosecutor said to Cora, If you see that same man in the courtroom today, the one who came to your bedroom door on Wednesday night, July 13, 1966, would you please step down and point him out? The petite, four-foot-ten-inch Filipina nurse maneuvered away from the witness box and walked firmly toward Speck until she stood less than a foot away. Pointing a finger at his face, she said, This is the man. With those words, Time magazine reported at the time she, quote, cast a galvanic spell over the room. Chicago Daily News reporters M.W. Newman and John Justin Smith aptly called Cora a blend of steel and lace, adding that she radiated sincerity and honesty on the stand. Newman later called Cora the greatest trial witness he had ever seen, given her certainty and attention to details. Once her portion of the trial was finished and she exited the courthouse, reporters and photographers rushed after her, the legal need for pretrial privacy gone. Over the following several days, the jury heard the testimony of nurses, fingerprint experts, detectives, and the coroner. Evidence presented included blood-soaked t-shirts found at the townhouse and a matching one that had been cut from Speck at the hospital. Martin also questioned a cab driver who picked Speck up after the murders, as well as someone who drank with the defendant shortly after, where he alleged that they discussed how to hop on a freight train to get out of town. If Speck would have pled guilty, his defense attorney could have considered an insanity plea. Instead, Getty fought for Speck's innocence, relying on the testimony of witnesses who claimed they saw Speck somewhere else at the time of the murders. He received flack for this decision, according to Illinois Bar Journal, about which he replied, I make it a practice never to judge my clients. You have to represent all comers, and if you judge them, you cannot defend them. Speck told me that he didn't do it, or that if he did, he didn't remember it. I tried to prove that he wasn't at the scene on the night of the crime. He put Speck's family on the stand, presenting them as good people who loved God, perhaps to humanize the accused or at least to make him seem less monstrous. Two key witnesses, owners of a restaurant, testified that Speck ate a burger at their establishment while the murders were taking place. The prosecution closed like this, according to court documents. Martin pointed at Speck, telling jurors that, quote, death stalked the hallways that night. He asserted that the suicide attempt showed his guilt and urged the jury to consider the death penalty, adding, he knew his own life should be taken. Then he eulogized each young woman who'd been killed. Ladies and gentlemen, he finished, it is your responsibility to the county and to the sovereign state to say that a man cannot murder eight innocent girls in their beds 
and expect to spend the rest of his life in a prison cell. Courage is what is required of you. The defense closed by trying to highlight the restaurant alibi, hoping that would hold comparable weight to Cora's powerful recollections. It took the jury less than an hour to reach a decision. They found Speck guilty of all eight counts of murder. During the post-trial procedures, the defense moved for a new trial and more medical tests, suggesting that Speck may have experienced an alcohol-induced epileptic furor on the night of the massacre, but it was denied. Instead, Speck was sentenced to death, a punishment that was overturned three years later because of the systematic exclusion of jurors who had expressed reservations about capital punishment. Instead, Speck would spend his remaining days behind bars. After two years in prison, Speck died of a heart attack on the eve of his 50th birthday. While he was alive, a video from the prison shows Speck performing oral sex on a fellow inmate. The person running the camera asked him why he murdered the nurses. With a shrug, Speck said, it just wasn't their night. Asked how he felt about that, he replied, if you are asking if I felt sorry, no. As for Cora, the sole survivor of the massacre, she never sold her story to media outlets, accepting only half of the $10,000 reward she received from the South Chicago Community Hospital for her role in solving the case. And she issued this statement. It is my desire to make clear that the memory of my dear colleagues is of such character that I do not want to have it tainted by the acceptance by me of money or any other personal benefit. After the trial, Cora returned to her home in the Philippines, where she worked as a hospital nurse, became a member of council, and married a man who worked as a realtor and attorney. Together, they had two kids. All the while, she stayed publicly quiet about the case, but surely never forgot the excruciating night when the world lost her close friends and colleagues. Nina Jo Schmale. Suzanne Ferris, Marianne Jordan, Marilita Gargulo, Pamela Wilkening, Gloria Jean Davy, Pat Matusik, and Valentina Passione. Pamela's statement on why she'd wanted to become a nurse in the first place is something we can only hope the legacy of the slain nurses will inspire. I have wanted to be a nurse for years, she said. I like people very much. I've never liked for them to suffer. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. For exclusive content and early access, find the show on Himalaya. <laughs>